You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. We've been talking about the Gospel of Matthew, and here we, talk, here we get to the point of this, where we get back to our main kind of theme that we've been talking about. And the theme is this. Due to Jesus' authority over the world, Jesus warns absolute allegiance from the world. Due to Jesus' unique authority over the world, or in the world, Jesus warrants absolute allegiance from the world. We see this, have seen this thus far in, in, in a lot of different ways. You can follow along with me in your program. Uh, on, the, on the back in your side of your program, there should be an outline that you can follow along with me if you would like. But we see this even in verse 31, that the crowds revere him. Notice, remember last week when we looked at verse 31, it said this about Jesus. It says, but they went out after him healing the two blind men, which we looked at last week. Verse 31 says this, but they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. So from this, we see that the crowds revere him, that the crowds revere him because of the supernatural things that Jesus is doing. Jesus is not just proclaiming a word. Jesus is actually showing the world what it looks like to live in the kingdom that he is proclaiming. In verses 32 through 34, we see not just that the world, the crowds revere him, but we also see that the proud reject him. In verses 32 through 34, we see the Pharisees who see and witness all of the miracles that you and I have seen and have talked about and have been, expe- have been exposed to ourselves, but yet they reject him. They take the works of God and they attribute it to the kingdom of Satan. So you see that the crowds revere him. You see the proud reject him. But then lastly, you see that the faithful renounce everything to follow him. This is a really good message for us today and kind of the place we kind of want to place our pen, if you will, as we look at Matthew chapter 9, that the faithful renounce everything to follow him. I don't know about you, but right now uh, in my daughter's uh, class, uh, class we, we were doing a quarter system. Last year when we were in Princeton, we used to do a semester system. So I'm getting, getting used to this quarter, but we're almost over with first quarter. And in first quarter, that means you get grades. Amen from teachers that, and students that have to get first quarter grades. And what I thought I may be interesting is, is to do this. I would love to look at the, the faithful that we've seen thus far. I want to look at six faithful examples of people that we've seen thus far, and I want to give them a grade according to their faith and what their faith looks like. So would you help me with that? I brought along a little, little, little uh, tool here to help me out. So here, I don't know if you can see this or not. I need to get a, got to write the grade in red ink so that if you don't write it in red, it's really not a grade, right? Uh, at least that's what my teachers told me. So here you can kind of see the different people we have, we have the satyrian, we have the leper, we have, I can't read upside down, the paralytic, we have Jairus, we have the suffering woman, and we have the two blind men. What I want to do is I want to look at this and I want to ask this question, who are the faithful and what attributes, attributes true faith? So remembering the satyrian, satyrian, remember how he was the man who came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, listen, I'm a man who has much authority and I know how much authority you have. You don't even have to come under my roof, Jesus. You could just say the word and my servant 
will be healed. Man, that's some, that's some pretty good faith. I don't want to sway you, but what grade do you think this person should get? The satirian. What, what grade do you think he should get? Yes, Naomi. An A? A minus? Let's say A plus. How about that? I'm sorry. I, your dad overrules you. I'm sorry. Let's say A plus. Did this man exhibit the most faith out of anyone? I mean, he's the one that came and said, Jesus, look, you don't even have to show up. All you got to do is say the word, and if you say the word, it's done. It's final. What about the leper? Remember the leper crying out to, to, to the Lord? How would you grade his, his faith in this story? Hey, okay. All right. I'll take that. That's fine. That's fine. That's good. What about the paralytic? Remember the paralytic, paralytic was the one who couldn't bring himself to Jesus. Four men had to bring him to him in order for him to be healed. Well, what grade would you give him on his faith? Somebody said A, B. Who said what? A? B? All right, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the middle. I'll say B plus. How about a B plus? That's, that's pretty good, I think. Extra credit. It always counts. With Jesus, with grace. Amen. Jairus. How about Jairus? Our brother, our brother John Bolin was a great Jairus last week. Huh? I think you're biased, but that's okay. Jairus, what do you think about Jairus? C plus. Okay. We're getting a little stricter. That's okay. Huh? I, whatever you, at this point, I go with whatever you say. Yeah, B plus, B minus. Okay, that's fine. How about the suffering woman? The woman who came behind Jesus, touched, touched his robe. She said, if I just touch him, I'll be healed. A, okay, A plus. Sister Ida, you convinced me. I'm going to give her an A plus just because of you, Sister Ida. How about the two blind men? Parents impersonated last week by Bud and Harold. They did a great job. What was it? What would you, what'd you say? Yeah, they didn't keep it a secret. There you go. We got, they, got a, they get a downgrade. Let's, let's, say, let's say B minus or B. That's fine. What about the Pharisees? The Pharisees we just read. <laughs> All right, Naomi, you, you won. You won. There we go. F. We give them an F. We'll give them an incomplete. Yeah, that's right. Incomplete. To be continued, right? What, what I want us to see and what I want us to hear and understand is that faith is this. Faith can be defined in many ways, but this is the way we, I want to define faith today. Faith is one's belief. It's one's belief manifested as trust but exemplified through obedience. Faith is one's belief manifested as trust, but exemplified through obedience. You see, you can't just have belief in a thing. You need to have a belief in a thing that also leads you to trust, to look to that thing in order to, 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 to solve or to, to bring whatever you're looking for to bring, to satisfy whatever desire that you have. And, but it's not just a, a, an aspect of looking for someone to satisfy you. It's also your pursuit of that thing. And that's why we say it's one's belief manifested as trust, but exemplified through obedience. You see, who are the faithful or who are the, the ones who have faith? They are the ones that understand that Jesus' ability to change or transform you is uniquely connected to the degree that we trust in him. Is uniquely connected to the degree that we trust in him. Now, 
Let me stop right there because I don't want us to, be, to believe about faith in a way that God hasn't intended for us to believe. Faith is not all, it's not just dependent upon you, your works, your prayers, your pushing, your efforts, but our posture of faith in God should be and is equivalent to the posture of faith towards God. Our posture of faith in God is always equivalent to the posture of faith towards God. Look with me with the dead man with his daughter who came to Jesus last week. He hasn't raised anyone from the dead. And he's coming to Jesus and he's saying this, I'm sure, I'm not sure if Jesus can do this, but I'm open. And with Jesus, there is a possibility. My daughter is dead. I have nowhere else to turn, but I go to Jesus and I not only believe that he can do it, I not only trust that he can do it, I exemplify my trust and my obedience through my I exemplify my faith through my obedience by pursuing Jesus, and he comes and Jesus heals, and Jesus raises his daughter to life. Look at the woman with the bleeding disorder. Mark, Mark and Matthew remind us that she has been going to doctors and trying everything to get well, but nothing has worked. She's in a place of desperation, but yet she's open. She's trusting that Jesus truly can make her well. And then think about the two blind men. They're, they're willing to look like a fool. They're, they're yelling out, following Jesus aimlessly, desperately crying out, son of God, son of David, have mercy on us. They are desperate. And there's a clear desire. Uh, there's a clear desire that they have for Jesus and Jesus alone to heal them. The main point that I want us to get is this, is that the degree that Jesus can transform you, the degree that Jesus can change you is precisely connected to the degree that we actually put our trust in him. In other words, if we come to him with a deep surrender, with a deep trust and an openness to his powers, if we come to him humbly admitting that, God, I, I don't know everything. I, I'm a mess. My life is not in order. My inner life is a mess. I need help. And Jesus, I need you to redefine reality and who I am. My own identity, Jesus, redefine it. If this occurs, then our experience truly becomes transformative. And here's the reason why. Because faith is a gift from God. Thus, our faith is never dependent upon us. It's not dependent on our, our ability to believe. It's not dependent on our prayer life. It is always dependent upon him. And faith always has two common factors. That Jesus meets you where you are. I think we can say amen to that. Jesus always meets you where you are. Jesus is not nonchalant. He is not laissez-faire. He's not a, take a hands-off approach towards us. Jesus meets them where, wherever their degree of trust is, and he works with them in that space. Amen. Jesus is not passive. He doesn't wait for them to fully understand or comprehend who he is. He graciously pursues his people. We have to fight the fable that Jesus is not wanting 
for some degree of faith to, to get there before he jumps in, that he's waiting for us to get our life together or to, to get our eschatology together or to get our, our, our Christological, Christological understanding of Christ together before he jumps in. No, whatever degree of faith is present, that is where he is working right there, right then, no exceptions. But not only does Jesus meet you where you are, Jesus also... It also matters what you believe about him. It also matters where you are. Where you are also matters to Jesus and what you believe about him. You see, while Jesus comes and works with you regardless of your degree of faith, yet at the same time, where you are matters to God. In other words, our response does matter. Our degree of faith matters. Our openness to who God is matters. And we see it right here in Matthew chapter 9, looking at verse 32 through 34 with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees had a closed off approach towards God. What degree of faith did they have towards Jesus? Absolutely none. They were closed off and they had already figured out how Jesus is doing all of this miraculous stuff. And they are not willing or open for, to hear or to reason to any other reason than the, than, the, um, than the hypothesis that they've come up with. They have already concluded that he is with the devil, that he is not good, he's not sovereign, and he is not God. You and I also face this dilemma, even as believers. I love how James chapter 1 puts it this way. He says this, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. You got to ask yourself, man, James, what are you talking Doubt what? What what am I doubting? Listen to verses 6b through 8. He says, for the doubter is like the surging sea tossed and driven by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and and unstable in all his or her ways. So this brings up the question, what are they denying? He says, let them ask in faith without doubting. Doubting what? what? What am I doubting? The answer is implied in the response that we are doubting not just God, but more importantly, we're doubting the goodness of God. They are doubting and denying the goodness of God. And here is a very good reminder for all of us in this room today that our view of God always determines our pursuit of him. That your view of God, how you see God, how you understand God, you will not follow, you will not pursue a God that you do not see see or, or understand to be good. It's impossible. Our view of God always determines our pursuit of him. So what is James talking about when he says, let him ask in faith without doubting? Don't doubt the goodness of God through your trials and tribulations. Don't, don't, waver, and, uh, don't waver between the, 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 the dichotomy of God is good today because my life is good, but God is not good tomorrow because my life just didn't seem to go the way I wanted it to go. G- James looks at that and says, you are like a, a doubter. You are like the doubter who is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. You, you are on the sea, but you are going from one side to another, ebbing and flowing between God is good and God is not. God is, God is holy, God is not. God is uh, who he says he is, God is not who he says he is. And what God is calling us to do as a church 
is to not allow our circumstances to define the character of God. That our God is good, he is wise, he is in control, and he reigns over all of us supremely as the God that he says he is and has revealed himself to be. Let me tell you the prayer that I've learned to say as a result of this. Lord, teach me to rest in the knowledge that you are in control. Lord, teach me to rest. Not, 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 not teach me to believe, but Lord, teach me to rest in the knowledge that you are in control. If things are going well in my life, if things aren't going well in my life, if everything, my bank account looks full or my bank account is, is being overwithdrawn, God, teach me, show me, give me the, the, the presence of mind to, to rest in the knowledge of your control. This is what that M that we talk about in our vision series about maturity. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Let's go back to that image of James chapter one. You remember that ship we saw tossing and turning, ebbing and flowing? Listen, that's going to happen to every single one of us because we live in a broken and fallen world, amen? It's going to happen to all of us. But, but here's the difference between a sea that is on the, 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 the a ship that's on the sea that's ebbing and flowing. We have to have an anchor that is anchored in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. We have to have an anchor that's stronger than the winds and the waves that we are, we are experiencing. We have to have an anchor that, that holds us still, even though the winds and the waves moves us in our lives. Jesus calls that building upon the solid rock, or building upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love this because it helps us to understand what faith is. And because God is a faithful God and because God calls us to faith, he doesn't just call us to a belief, but he calls us to action. We see that in verses 35 through 36. Look at that with me. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and synagogues, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I love this because this part shows us and it reminds us uh, what moves the heart of God, what compels Jesus' compassion towards us and towards sinners. We notice three things. Look at verse 36. The first thing that moves the heart of God towards sinners is their size. In this time, in this context where Jesus is at, there are over 200 cities and villages in Galilee, which, which would approximate a total population around 3 million people in this region alone. Let's put it in today's uh, nomenclature. Today, there are 7.5 billion people in the world. About a third of those people are Christian. That means that about 4 billion people in the world are non-Christians right now. I love this because it helps us to see the heart of God, that Jesus sees the size and he sees the need. He sees that the people are in distress and he sees that he, he knows that they are in distress and he wants to respond to their distress, even in the size that they represent and the size that is there before them. Not only do he sees their size, he also sees their suffering. Notice with me in verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. 
This aspect of compassion for them is similar to an analogy of seeing someone you love in pain and anguish. I haven't had the privilege of seeing being by someone in the bedside that I love too often, but there are two things that I do remember um, recently that have happened. I remember my daughter when she was uh, around four or five years old, we go to the playground often like most parents do to get the energy out of their kids, or at least try to. And uh, she ended up splitting her forehead open um, by having a little accident. And I was terrified, not just because we had to go to the hospital, but I was terrified because my daughter absolutely hates needles. She doesn't like shots and she doesn't need, like needles. And I knew that if she went there, that if she got needles or she saw needles, that she would be uh, terrified. We got to the doctor's office, emergency room. They took us right to the back. They, it was bleeding profusely. I told the doctor explicitly, I said, listen, you got to butterfly this. I know it may not look pretty. I know it may leave a scar, but please butterfly this because if my daughter sees a needle, she will freak out and that's not going to be pretty. And I'm telling you as her father, you need to listen to what I'm saying. And he said, yes, sir, right away. He started to look at the, the, um, the cut and it was bleeding even more. And all of a sudden he says, I think we need to stitch this up. And my heart just dropped because at that point on, what I wanted to do is punch the doctor out. Yes, I did want to punch him out. Um, but I knew I had to stay calm because of my daughter. Because now we were going to go through something that both of us didn't want to go through, but we had to go through it because we were at that point where this was what's for best for her. And as they put her, she was screaming, she's yelling, she's looking at me, Daddy, Daddy, stop, please. And I'm just like, Lord, Bellard, like, baby, it's going to be okay. They had to actually restrain her head uh, because she was uh, so uh, worked up and so upset by what was going on. And I remember that. I remember seeing them and being helpless in that situation as a dad, seeing my one and only, my firstborn daughter being strapped to, a, to uh, something that restrained her and restricted her from moving so that they could do the very thing that I didn't want them to do in the very way that I didn't want them to do it, but it was for her benefit at that time, per medical expertise and advice at that time. This is somewhat similar. I'm not saying this is the exact same thing, but it's somewhat similar what Jesus is feeling. He's feeling compassion. He, his, his, his heart is going out towards the people. He's seeing someone whom he loves, these people who are created in the image and likeness of God. It is like seeing someone in that place in pain and anguish, and, and you can do nothing about it. You just look at them, and you have, to, you have to console them, and you have to be near them despite their pain and their anguish. And G, notice what Jesus says here. He says he sees and feels their suffering, but he also knew this. He also knew that they desperately needed him as a merciful shepherd, as their merciful shepherd. They were like sheep without the shepherd, and he knew that he was the best shepherd for them. Not only that, did, he, did they, uh, <clears throat> not only did they see the size, not only did he feel their suffering, verse 37, he realized their need for salvation. Look with me in verse 37. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I love this because it helps us to see that Jesus knew the desperate condition of those whom he ministered to. They were separated from God without hope and without a covering. And they would face God's holy and righteous judgment um, apart from God and, and apart from atonement. 
If nothing had changed in their life, they would stand before God in their sins and they will be cast into eternal darkness as a result. Jesus knows this fully. He knows the situation and he, he realizes and it causes him anguish in his heart to have compassion towards these people who needs a shepherd. I think it's a good question for us, even as a church, as young as we are. Do we realize the gravity of eternity? Do, do we really realize the, the gravity of eternity? Do we sense the urgency to share the gospel, to, to be the living embodiment of the gospel to a broken and fallen world? And even more importantly, do we see the world with the eyes of Jesus? Not with the eyes of, of not with your eyes, not with the eyes of Humana or, or any other nonprofit that's helping um, 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 impoverished situations, but do we see the world with the eyes of Jesus? Here's the reality, church. We don't have time to play games with our lives or play games in the church. We don't have time to waste our lives on the pursuits, the pleasures, and possessions of, of this world. We don't have time to, to uh, intentionally, intentionally neglect the concerns of this world because we are overly concerned with the concerns of our own lives. Our God reigns over us supremely, and God's concern is for his, this world. His concern, his concern is for you. And, and check out this. Your concern should be for his harvest. God's concern is for you, but, but your concern should be for his harvest. Notice what the commission of Christ in verses 28, um, in, in verse starting off in chapter 10. Uh, and before, wait, before I get there, let me go back to this really quick. The, he says this, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Notice what Jesus calls us to. Jesus first calls us to pray. He doesn't say, there's the harvest, or here's the harvest, now go. The harvest is there, go out to the harvest and, and reap and, 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 go, and, and, and go gather. He says, here's the harvest, now pray. Here's, here, here's, the, here's the result, here's the produce, here, here's what you are, are looking for. Here's the harvest, here are the people, don't go yet. But first, pray. I love this question. Why should we pray to God? Why should we look to him? As Christ's church, God is already on mission. He's already on mission. We didn't come to this church and we didn't plant this church in order to start the mission of God. God is already on mission. But we need to be on him on his mission. We need to be on mission with him, praying on our, on our knees and asking and pleading with God to send out workers, but also that we will become workers to be sent out to his harvest. We, we should actually pray for people to leave for the right reasons. Amen. Not because of music, not because of the ministry, not because of the mood or your mood, but the only legitimate reason to leave a church it's to be on mission for God. 
My prayer at Princeton University, I was a campus minister there for seven years. My prayer was simply this, as, as I saw myself there, probably I, I understood the, the call of the missionary assignment there in a way that I've never had in my life because I was able to, to have a ministry of about 350 students and a staff of about 11 staff members from all types of denominations, Catholic, Lutheran, Pentecostal, um, Anglican. I mean, we just had a plethora of students from all different denominations. All, we had conservative students. We had, we had students who were more liberal. We had, we had this multicultural kind of multifaceted ministry. And I loved every bit of it. But one of the things that God put on my heart from the very beginning is this prayer that, Lord, I want to be the answer to someone else's prayer. And what I meant by that was I realized that being at Princeton, I love these students and I was pouring my life out to them. College ministry is really hard because it's opposite of daylight time. You know, everything picks up when everything goes dark. And that's like hard for a 32 to 35 year old person because you want to go to sleep. Um, it's, it's a really hard thing, but, but you, you, t- you do the sacrifice, and you make it work. But one of the things that Lord put on my heart from the very beginning was this. I know I love these kids, but there are other people who love them more than me. There are moms, there are grandmas, there are aunties, there are uncles, there are pastors that are praying for these kids because they're going to Princeton University. You know, Princeton, if you go there, they're going to just make you into a heathen, which is not true, but kind of true, but not true. Um, sorry, Princeton. Um, they, they, they'll, they'll turn you in, away from your faith. And so the Lord put this prayer on my heart that God let me be the answer to someone else's prayer. I don't want to sit here and act like I'm the answer to all these students' situations and problems. I am the result and I am the answer of someone who's been praying for these students far more than, than I, even I've been praying for them. That is the heart, that is the posture that we need to have is that God let me be the answer to someone else's prayer. Let me be the answer to go reach my neighbor who maybe their, that maybe their sister or brother has been plan- praying that they may know Jesus. Let me be the answer to that person's prayer. Let me be the answer to the prayer of someone who has been struggling with depression and, 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 and they need someone to come and pray with them or just to show them that they're loved. Let me be the answer to that prayer. That's what we're called to as believers and as Christians is, is that the, bun- the harvest is abundant and it's plentiful But what we need to do is pray to the Lord that he would send out laborers, workers into his harvest. And as we pray that prayer, we're not praying for the person to the left or the right to be sent out. We're praying that I may be the one to be sent out, that I may have a sensitivity to the moving and spirit of God, that I might have a sensitivity to to, to pray or to love or to console or to be near the brokenhearted and the despised of this world. Not that I wait for somebody else to do it, but God, put it on my heart. Give me the compassion to do and to exemplify the change and to, and to, and to be the change that I so desperately want to see in this world. He calls them first to pray. And so do I. I call us to pray, church. Pray to the one who only can send out laborers. Pray to the only one that can only, can only conjure up compassion that proceeds that, that, that leads to charity and care for the brokenhearted. Love in verse 7, um, Jesus sends out, verse 10, he says, he sends out his 12 disciples, he names them there. But in verse 7, he says, as you go, proclaim this, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. I love this because a lot of times, in, especially in the school of theology, we want to separate the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the cross. 
But the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the cross are not antithetical, amen? That the kingdom of heaven is, no, is mostly associated with the liberation of the oppressed or what we call social justice or whatever you want to call it like that. The kingdom of the cross is most always kind of connected to redemption or the substitute, substitutionary atonement. But here's the reality. If we have liberation of the oppressed without the need for justice, if we have reconciliation without justice, that's only cheap, insufficient, and tedious. It's incomplete, as someone said earlier about the faith of the Pharisees. But with the kingdom of the cross, if we have justice without reconciliation, that is only shadow, meaningless, and trite. We have a both-and religion here. We have a both-and relationship and commission and command from Jesus is that we are to go preaching, yes, the, the cross of Jesus and redemption and forgiveness of sin, but we're to do that to a specific people, to a specific place that will have specific results. As followers of Christ, our lives should be on the table before the Lord, that wherever he says to go, we should go. None of us is intended to coast through life until we get to heaven. None of us. I saw a great example of that even this week with Sister Edith, who's an older member in our congregation. Sister Edith is a part of our Jolly Elders, and she came up to me after the Jolly Elders, and she said, Pastor Fields, I want to I start a prayer group. I want to start a, a Bible study. I'm like, okay, cool. You want to start it here at the church? She said, no, I want to start it somewhere else. I want to start it at a nursing home. I have a friend who's in a nursing home, and at, at the nursing home, they just sit there all day. They're not well taken care of. They're not, they're not loved on. We can do a weekly Bible study there. I said, Edith, that's such a great idea. I love that. I love that you are thinking about that, that you are seeing a need and you want to respond in, in an appropriate way with the gospel of Christ. I love that. Sister Edith is 80 years, 80, 80 years young, uh, plus young, beautiful woman um, of God. And she's a woman who's on mission for God, even despite her older age and her, her, uh, her older age. I love that. I love that. I love seeing that. There's a particular way we want to call you and, and our church to this as well. We, we've ordered these wonderful signs here. I don't know if you see this or not. But we ordered some lawn signs for anyone who wants to, to receive these signs to help people know about our church and about Christ and, and to understand who Christ is. Um, and if the prerequisite to receive this, this is free if you would like it, is two things. One is you got to be a member of the church. And the other thing is that you, might, you have to live within South Louisville region. So if you live here in South Louisville, we'd love for you to have this. So come see myself. Come see Christina in the pastor's office if you want to receive one of these lawn signs to put on your lawn to be able to invite people to, uh, to inform them about our church and what God is doing here. See, Jesus beckons us to pray to the Lord of the harvest for the glorious goal of spreading his gospel to the whole world. But not only he commissions us to, to pray, he also summons us to go. Look with me in verses, um, in verses uh, 8 through 15. He says this, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandal, or staff for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or, or village, Find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. 
Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So not only does he calls us to pray, but he also calls us to go. I love this in uh, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority. This word summoning there in the Greek literally means uh, it has a thought or it could be compared to a military commander calling his soldiers together to give them specific orders. And Jesus gives them two specific directives. Go to the greatest need, but then also great, go to the greatest danger. Go to the greatest danger. Where are we to go? Notice what he says um, here in verses 7 and 8. Go to the diseased, go to the dying, and go to the despised, and go to the dirty. He says, heal the sick, go to the diseased, go to those who, who are diseased and who are, who are dying in this way. Go to the dying. He says, raise the dead, cause, cause life to come into dead situations, and the dead, actually dead corpse, uh, corpses, literally. He says, go to the despised, cleanse the lepers, those who have been rejected in society, and lastly, dry, go to the dirty, those who are um, demon-possessed or who are demon-oppressed um, in this world. In other words, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, go to the people that the world ignored or has oppressed. And here's the promise. As we go to meet the needs of others, he will meet our needs along the way. Amen? As we go to the needy, we'll learn to trust in his provision. And as we reach out to the needy, they will see Jesus, we will see Jesus as sufficient to meet not just our greatest need, but also their greatest need in this way. Jesus says some hard things here. He says, those who are worthy and unworthy, just really quick and very, uh, very, very in a quick summary, those who are worthy are those who would welcome the disciples and their message. And those who are unworthy would, would neither welcome them nor listen to them. And Jesus gives them clear command. There are people going to listen to you, and there are people who are not going to listen to you. He says, bring peace regardless. The Jewish greeting is shalom, which means peace be unto you. It was a pronouncing a blessing. But if they rejected you or they rejected the gospel, they were unworthy of such a greeting. And what Jesus told them to do as a result was to this, shake the dust off your feet. Often when Jews return home from a pagan land or from a foreign land, they would return to their homeland of Israel. And but they, before walking into Israel, they would shake off the dust of their feet upon uh, they would t- shake off the dust of their feet um, so that that dust in pagan land would not would not commingle or actually enter into the nation of Israel. And by shaking off the dust of their feet G- upon being rejected, these disciples are um, have marked those who have rejected the gospel as pagans who do not belong who do not truly belong to Israel. It's a good thing here that in, in verses 1 through 11 through 13, we see that Jesus is calling his disciples at the time to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's calling them to go to Israel um, in, order, in order to hear and to respond to the gospel. Why? Because Israel already knows the truth. They have a foundation of, to build upon. They have the Old Testament. They have the prophets. They have the narratives. They have the stories to make sense of the gospel. So Jesus tells his disciples first to go to the house of Israel. But he also tells them later, as you know, when he went upon his his resurrection, to not just go to the house of Israel, but to go to all nations. And even that's how we have come to hear of the gospel because of us being Gentiles. He says, not only go to the greatest need, but also go to the greatest danger. Look with me in verse 16 through 23. 
says this, look, I'm sending you out like sheep, sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say in that very hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. Notice that he not only calls them to the greatest needs, to the disease, the dying, the despised, and the dirty, but he also calls them to the greatest danger. Here he uses his metaphor of sheep, verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, sheep are foolish, and if we like it or not, <laughs> they are described as dumb, defenseless, and overly dependent. Sheep are dumb. They're, they're, they're unlike goats. They, they, they cannot fend for themselves. If you leave a sheep out in the, in the middle of the, of the, of the of, uh, prairie or in the middle of the pasture, they won't know how to fend for themselves. They, they're a harmless noise. Any harmless noise can send a sheep into a frenzy. Now, I got that from, the, from, from doing my research, so I, 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 uh, I lean on the expertise of any of y'all who really grow, grew up on a farm, and you know what you're talking about in regards to sheep, but this is what I'm, I've been told, y'all, so I'm going to go with it. The city boy, that's what I've been told, that any harmless noise can send sheep into a frenzy. You may have the super sheep maybe back at your house or maybe growing up with, but... That's what I was told. They're also defenseless. When when facing danger, they have no defense except to run. But guess what? They can't even run fast because they're slow runners. (laughs) They're defenseless. They don't have sheep. They don't have claws. They don't have teeth. They don't have any way to protect themselves. And the only way they can protect themselves is by running, and they're one of the slowest runners in the animal kingdom, so they're bound to get eaten up eventually. And then lastly, they're over de- overly dependent. They need a shepherd to guide, lead, and protect them always. They always need a shepherd. I, I-, I know this sounds uh, offensive, but it's true. And this is why Jesus uses the, this aspect of sheep to talk about us as his, his people, as his church. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You need a shepherd at all times. There's never a time in your life where you're going to be like, okay, I don't need that shepherd anymore. I don't need to be guided anymore. I don't need to be led anymore. I don't need to be protected anymore. You never get too big for God, amen? I love what Psalm 23 says. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. Notice how the emphasis is always on the shepherd. It's on Jesus. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. I love verse 5. Even though I go through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no, no, no evil or no danger. Why, David? Why won't you fear any evil? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I love this psalm. It, it shows us the totality of what being a good shepherd is. In both the good times of having your provisions met and being led in a good way, God is our shepherd, amen? And we, even when we go through the darkest valley, when we go through the darkest um, times of our life, God is still our shepherd and we have nothing to fear because he is with us. We never get, we never get too big for our shepherd. Church, don't get too big for Jesus. 
The truth is, the more you grow in, grow in Jesus, the more dependent you become upon him. The truth is, the more you see the glory of God, the more you are compelled to submit more and align yourself more to the beauty that is Christ Jesus. The truth is, the, the, the more and stronger you are, the strongest Christians are not those who are independent from God, but who are the ones who are most deeply dependent upon him to be their shepherd. Notice who's in control. Jesus is the one sending them out as sheep among shepherds. Now, this may be confusing, and it should be confusing. Why, Jesus? I mean, why would you send your sheep among wolves? And here's the reason why. Because Jesus sends us into uncomfortable situations in order to, for, for us to find our comfort in him. Jesus sends us into uncomfortable situations in order that we might find our comfort in him. The responsibility of the shepherd is to protect the sheep from the wolves. But here Jesus is sending the very thing that he wants to protect us from. He's sending us right into the midst of it. And Jesus tells his disciples to go into dangerous places, go among the evil, go among murderous people, knowing that he sent, that he sent them there by design. We mistakenly think sometimes that, that if it's not safe, uh, it must not be of God. If it's too risky, if it's too dangerous, or if it may cause harm, we, we must not be in God's will. But safety has never been the criteria by which we determine God's will for our lives. We determine his will according to his ways and according to his instruction, his word. Jesus instructs them that while hanging out the wolves, you got to do a couple of things. Verse 16, he says this, be as smart as snakes. A snake is a symbol of shrewdness and wisdom. And what Jesus is telling them is this, don't, and don't, need, don't needlessly incite anger or trouble for yourselves. Snakes were very crafty in that day, that if a snake sees danger, a snake goes away from the danger. It doesn't just pursues danger just, just in order to pursue it. It is similar to what Jesus did, even upon his death, going into the face of Pilate and Roman officials like a lamb led to the slaughter. And yet while he was beaten and while he was being taken off to be crucified, Jesus spoke with much wisdom and much grace and much care. He's very strategic in how he responded to the situations of this world. Be as smart as snakes. But here's the second part. Be as pure as doves. You see, the dove is symbolic of innocence. And what Jesus is calling us to is not just to be wise, but he's also calling us to do not become impure with evil. Don't allow your circumstance to define who God is in your life. The, the, he wants us to, he calls us to purity in action. In other words, to remain innocent in the middle of difficult situations. And here's the reality, that what comes out of us actually matters to God. It actually matters to God. There's a great analogy, and I wish I had something to, to show you it right now, but for the sake of time, um, maybe I'll draw it on the board really quick if I can. I don't know if I have time, but we'll see. Ooh, that's not going to work. <laughs> All right. How about this? <clears throat> I'll use, I'm not going to use a community cup. That's not a good thing. All right. So say, for instance, I'm walking down the street, and there's a, pile, there's a pail full of water 
right in front of me. And I'm walking around, talking to my wife, looking in her eyes, having goo-goo eyes. And I hit the pail, and the pail falls over, and all the water spills out. It's just, it's just a big mess. If you look at that mess, and you saw that, that water just kind of spilling out, and I ask you the question, whose fault was it that the, that the water spilled out? What would you say? You say, my fault. Okay, there you go. You say, my fault. That's true. That's true. Um, because I'm the one that kicked it. But there's also someone who left that water in that pail. I don't know who left it in the pail, but it was there. And I kicked it, and as we were kicking, kicking it, what happened? It spilled out. It came out. A lot of times in our lives, we see the injustices, we see the things that happen in our lives, the kicks in our lives, the pail, right? Our pail, our heart gets kicked with various situations in our lives. And we look at it and say, well, if you wouldn't be so mean to me, or if you wouldn't be so contrived, if you wouldn't do these things to me, then maybe I could be a better person. What Jesus wants us to realize is that what comes out of your heart in hard situations matters to him. It matters to him. It matters to him because it should matter to you. Jesus said to put it this way. He says, he says um, the evil thoughts don't, don't just come murder it, murder, and all these things in our world don't just come from an kind of artificial. It comes from our heart. It comes from what's in here, and then it just spills over. And the actions and things of our life only reveal what was first in our hearts in the first place. I dealt with this in a, in a really real way. My wife is away with the girls weekend, whoop, whoop, for girls weekends. Uh, but I've been over, in over my head. I mean, I've just been over, over my head with my kids and everything. Uh, it's been great. I love it, but it's been hard and difficult at the same time. I'll admit that. I still love my kids, though. Um, and I was, I mean, yesterday I was tripping out. I was short. I was sharp. I was, just, I was just being so mean to my kids. I'm like, what is going on? You know what was going on? My, it wasn't my wife's fault. She's gone. She's enjoying herself. But my can was being kicked. And guess what? It was showing me what was already in my heart. Anxiousness, anger, harshness, impatience, whatever else, it was already there. And the things that were happening to me wasn't causing those things. It was, my, my heart was already filled with those things. And, and because that happened, it just spilled out. There is a way in which we can be persecuted. There's a way in which we can experience the difficulties of our lives. And yet what comes out of our hearts doesn't have to be evil. It can actually be good and pure and righteous and holy. In Jesus, he can transform our hearts so that when we're kicked, not if, but when, we're all going to get kicked. We're all going to experience the trials and tribulations of our life. But hopefully, the things that come out of our life and out of our lips will be aligned with who God is and what he has revealed to us in his word. That the fruits of the spirit will come out of us, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of tribulation. And you know what Jesus calls that? He calls that being innocent as doves. Be shrewd as snakes, but be innocent as doves. Be innocent. And the way that you, 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 you rectify that is not by going home with a to-do list of, oh, I got to do this. It's admitting to God, I, my heart is full of X, Y, and Z. So for me, it looks like me going before, God, I'm overwhelmed. Father, I, 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 I am just in over my head. I've been, I've, been, I've, been un, I've been unkind to my children. I've been impatient. I've been harsh. Father, I confess these things to you, and I ask forgiveness for my kids. I just ask for them forgiveness on the way over here, even this morning. And, and then I'm looking to Jesus to, to, to heal and to restore and to rectify me through his word 
through his people, through his spirit and through his people to the glory of his name. This is what it means to be as pure as dove. Lastly, and I know my time is running short, what should we expect as we follow Jesus into dangerous situations? We should expect three things. We'll be betrayed, we'll be hated, and we'll be persecuted. We'll be betrayed, verse 21. We'll be hated, verse 22, and then we'll be persecuted. The the kingdom of God, I know you don't like this and you may not not fully uh, agree with this and that's okay, but the kingdom of God is divisive. If you follow Christ, you will most certainly be misunderstood and the people you least suspect, even family members, they may turn on you. They may turn on you. People will, will simply not like you when you proclaim Jesus. They, they will hate you because they hated Jesus and our lives are identified with him. We can do charitable deeds to help other people with their needs, but when we go into the world doing those same charitable deeds in the name of Jesus, the world has a way of responding much differently to us if we didn't mention Jesus. And here's the reason. The reason is simply because Jesus says it in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus says it perfectly, and next week when Pastor Nick picks it up, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and slave like his master. If they called the head of the house, I can't even say the word, uh, Satan, I'll just say Satan. <laughs> Lord Jesus, how much more the members of his household? <laughs> oh, man. In other words, if Jesus was persecuted and he is our teacher and master, then do we think that uh, he will be above that? The gospel is offensive. It assumes a lot of things. It does. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. That's the most offensive verse you can share with anybody. You know why? Because it assumes that God was there in the beginning, and it assumes that you weren't there for to see anything, that you have to look to God for understanding of what this world is supposed to be like. That God is the author, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the redeemer of this world. And if you want to know what this world should look like, you don't look to politics, you don't look to different religions, you look to Jesus, you look to God to understand what the wholeness of this world should look like. In the beginning, God. It's the most offensive verse. The Bible starts off offensive because the gospel is offensive. God is simply The Bible assumes that God is king and we are not. The the Bible assumes that Jesus reigns sovereignly and that he has no rivals or no equals. The Bible assumes that he alone is savior, that he is God, and that no one else can save us. Guess what? That's offensive. That's offensive because it assumes that it, it knows and it has the truth that every person needs to hear. But guess what? The truth is always offensive. It always stirs up controversy and it always creates and has a hostility against it because it is the truth. The world responds with hostility to him. And if you want to avoid being betrayed, hated or persecuted, then you shouldn't, then don't be like Jesus and don't, don't, don't become like Christ. The reality is this, that the danger of our lives increases in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Jesus. 
the dangers of our lives increases in proportion with the, to the depth of our relationship with Jesus. We are prone to sit back and settle for religious routine and comfortable Christianity, not because we like it, because it's safe and it's because it's familiar and the world likes us in that mold. As long as we live our lives like, like everyone else, going to church on Sunday and keeping our faith to ourselves, we will face little risk in this world. The only problem is, is that we will also know little of Christ. Yet so much of the world. See, when we do know Christ and when we're becoming like him and proclaiming him, things will not be easy for us. The more Christ is manifested in your life and in your family, the harder it will get for you in this world. Why? Because you will become like the ones who was, you will become like the one who was mocked, beaten, scourged, spit on, and nailed to the cross. And here's a question that we want to ask ourselves. Do you really want to be like Jesus? I mean, really, be like him. If so, our lives won't stay the same. Our lives won't be easy. In all actuality, they will be dangerous. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He says, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And he gave thanks. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He also took wine, wine that was a, at first grapes, but it was crushed and fermented. And he says, drink this. This is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this also in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. I invite you to come as you are able to take part of communion, the communion table with us this morning. But come with us knowing and pledging allegiance to Jesus and to his kingdom. Come pledging allegiance with Jesus and maybe even renouncing allegiance with this world. If you're not a Christian, it's best that you don't partake in this meal. This is a family meal. It is for us to take together. Um, you you are do, do more honor by staying in your seats and contemplating things that have been said. But it, maybe today is the day that you turn and you look to Jesus anew and afresh and see him for who he is, the one true living God, broken and given for the remission of your sins. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and ask that you would bless our time even now. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you, God, that you've given us an opportunity to follow, to know, and to serve you. God, we want to see you for who you are, not just who we think you to be. God, thank you that you have called us to a broken bread and fermented wine to remind us of the brokenness that you experienced in our behalf. But that brokenness wasn't just for you. That brokenness is also for us. Father, help us, Lord, in this world to be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. Help us that what comes out of us during hard times would mimic and exemplify you, the author and creator and the finisher and the sustainer of our faith. Grow us in this way, Father. Help us, Lord, to see you as you are. Bless this uh, communion time. I pray that you would allow your spirit to be near and palpable. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, 
info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.